0: Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Eric Tonnis. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and I am delighted to open God's Word this morning and learn along with all of you as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, as we preach through this book that in some ways is written to a people that are so incredibly different than we are. But as we've gone through it, I hope you've been able to see how even though they are very different in many ways, In fundamental ways, they're no different. And the messages that Paul is writing to them couldn't be more relevant to our lives and our day, as we've learned from this church in Corinth that has some serious problems that Paul is seeking to address. And this morning, we're thinking about something that, in the details, most of us can't relate to. Some of you may be able to, but most of us can't relate to it. It's about whether you eat food that's been sacrificed to idols or not. Has anyone wrestled with that this week? Probably not. But we've got to realize that the fundamental point is being faithful in our context, being faithful in our circumstances, being faithful in our culture in light of what we've come out of. You see, these Corinthian believers They weren't raised in a Christian family. The the Christian gospel here in the first century was taking root. They had come out of pagan backgrounds. And if you're an older convert, if you came to Christ as an adult, if you became a Christian later in your life, you'll probably have an easier time relating to the Corinthians in this way because they were trying to figure out how they lived in the culture in which they lived. Having lived in it completely absorbed in a pagan culture, a culture that was opposed to the one true God and his ways and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they were trying to figure out how they could be salt and light and grow as disciples and as ministers of the gospel in a culture that had woven through it all of these practices that they had found life and communion with their gods in that had been very meaningful to them. It wasn't a secular society like so much of our day in our culture. It was profoundly religious. One ancient writer said that there were over a dozen worship places just in the central market area profoundly religious woven into all areas of life and so they're figuring out how to continue to be faithful in this and specifically we're going to be looking at people who are having a very difficult time applying what's true about God and true about idols namely that God is real and idols aren't they're having a hard time applying this to their lives in relation to this food sacrifice to idols issue. Well, we'll get into it a little bit more, but right off the bat, I want you to know that this passage is wanting us to be very tender-hearted, kind and loving and sympathetic to people who have rules about being a Christian that you may not have. And actually, they have rules they don't need to have, but they do. You know, my mother led me to Christ when I was very young. And she was led to Christ by her father who was a Salvation Army preacher who emigrated from... Uh, what was part of the Prussian Empire, Galatia. It doesn't even exist anymore. But he emigrated here and from a very conservative background and he came out of empty religion that he had learned there. And through the preaching of the Salvation Army, he became a Christian. He understood that Jesus was the only way to God and forgiveness by faith alone. And man, he wasn't looking back. And he was not interested in messing around with anything that wasn't going to help him be focused on Jesus and what really mattered. And Adam Petz, his name was, I've never met him. I can't wait to meet him. I will someday. He died when my mom was in high school. But she loved her father, even though he was very strict. And the way he interpreted his Christian ethics was so different than I bet any of you here do. Uh, my mother loved Elvis. But there was no Elvis in the house when my grandfather was around. Now part of the problem was my grandmother looked the other way or listened the other way when my mother would turn the radio on and listen to Chuck Berry and Elvis. But she would always keep an eye out for my grandfather's car coming down the road after work and change the station or turn it off, more likely. And the few times he got home earlier than she thought or she didn't see him coming, she said he'd come in and he'd walk right over to that radio and he'd turn it off and he'd look at her and say, I'll give you jazz He didn't care if it was rock and roll or jazz. None of it mattered, right? I'll give you jazz. Couldn't play jazz in the house either. Oh, no. He came from a context. I mean, it's a good thing they didn't have a television and he didn't see Elvis on Ed Sullivan. (laughs) Shaking his head. Can you imagine my grandmother would have thought of the Super Bowl halftime show? He would have just spontaneously combusted I just read about it and I was starting to smoke. I, I it was I can imagine what my grandfather with thought, but see his context meant you you don't listen to Elvis. And how where, how's that gonna help you grow in Christ? Tutti fruity oh Rudy. What well, I mean, nonsense, right? And you never, if you're a man, wear a hat inside. You don't play cards, you don't drink alcohol. And no mixed bathing. You know, they said lots of rules about men and women couldn't swim together. I was swimming in the pool this week thinking about this sermon, and I was thinking about, you know, those weren't stupid people. Uh, you know, it's so easy to say, oh, a grandfather didn't like Elvis. What an idiot. What's his problem? Elvis is great. Well, go easy on my grandfather, all right? He wasn't stupid. He would go downtown, put a milk crate down, and stand on it and preach the gospel in three different languages. Not at the same time, one at a time. He could, he could fix anything, make anything. He was a character. He thought a lot of the problems in the United States can be traced back to how lame our bread is compared to Eastern Europe. Yeah, he, he was on to some things, but he... Uh, he was an amazing man. Don't don't you judge my grandfather harshly. Um, you're going to love him when you meet him. But see, he was coming to his Christian life with a certain context, a certain framework. And this isn't something we can't relate to, is it? Don't we all come to our Christian life and seek to help others grow in their Christian life from a certain context, a certain background, a certain experience? You know, I stood here, and I officiated the wedding of Carissa and Arvind Balaram. And then they went back, Carissa's like a daughter to us, and they went back and they had a wedding ceremony in India. And they are so intentional about being missionaries who love and embrace Indian culture. That's home. They name their kids Indian names. They, and so she wanted a wedding that was Indian. But man, even thinking ahead be, uh, to it before she left, we had all these conversations late into the night because just about everything in that wedding you could trace some sort of connection to Hindu religion. Henna on her hands. I mean, all these things, if you you studied long enough, you could say, well, you know, that actually started with Hindu roots. You don't want to affirm that, do you? So, so many opinions, so many judgment calls, this tension between how do I faithfully be a missionary in a context that's so different than mine and, and, and cross all these barriers, not needlessly separating myself when these things don't mean any of that to me. See, these things are really relevant in missions especially, but in our day too, aren't they? Last week I met with a young man who came to Christ six months ago. He's a really good basketball player. But his whole life, basketball has been an idol. If, you, if you've never played a sport or been really involved in sports, you might not realize how idolatrous this can be. Oh, even more than some statue you bowed down before. Whether it's a fan or a, but if you're a player, I mean, this guy, he's actually wrestling. He's really good. He's got a career ahead of him. And he's wrestling. Can I even do this? Because it's been an idol for me. It's given me life in ways it never should have. It's given me a sense of importance and significance. See, that's what God does for us. But that's what idols do for us, too. He's trying to figure this out. Can I be a Christian and play basketball? Now, you hear that on the surface. You say, well, it's ridiculous. Of course he can. Not so fast. You know, our friend Andre, Andre Murillo, I knew him about six months after he became a Christian, and he was wrestling with the same thing years ago. And Andre... Not only saw this as an idol, he had to figure out how he didn't just instinctively respond in self-exalting, ugly, crush other people ways. He got in a fist fight with one of his own teammates at halftime here at Biola. After he was a Christian, we had a long talk about whether he should just quit. You know, he wisely said, "I'm not. I'm not dating a woman for two years." You might think, come on, that's legalism. No, that's smart. He was trying to figure out how to take idols in his life and see him as God-honoring others blessing things. And that's that, it, this couldn't be more relevant. These people were trying to figure out how do I come out of this pagan context where I found life in these sacrifices of food to idols. And now I just act like it's just meat? It's just food? I see all kinds of stuff gets loaded in there for me. You know, you may hear a song from high school and you need to shut it off because you got high to that song all the time. And maybe guilt comes back or memories you don't want come back. Is that legalism or is that just completely understandable and actually on one level wise well let's find out what god has for us this morning first corinthians chapter 8 now concerning food offered to idols we know that all of us possess knowledge. Now, you'll notice quotation marks around that statement right there. I think what's going on here is Paul's responding to a letter the Corinthians wrote him. He plants this church five years before this, but now people are using things he said that are actually true, but they're using them in ways he's very concerned about. See, that happens, you know. Something can be true and it can be used in a way that isn't good. So true isn't enough, it needs to be used in a truthful way. And so he's correcting, maybe he's quoting himself here that they're now quoting and asking him about. We know that all of us possess knowledge. We all understand the basic truths as believers in Jesus of the good news of Christ. But Listen to what he says, this knowledge puffs up. It makes us arrogant. It makes us think we're something else. It makes us think we're better than other people because we have this knowledge, which is complete insanity. When it's knowledge of God in Christ, which is all about grace and it's all gift, how we can then twist that and find it as a source of our superiority over other people is completely whacked. But that's what's happening, and that's what happens in every one of our hearts with knowledge. That's a tendency, is it not? There's a reason we call a sophomore a sophomore, which means wise fool. Because they gain some knowledge, enough to think they know a whole lot, but not enough to know how little they really know. And he says this knowledge puffs up. It makes you arrogant. But love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So there are ways of knowing. You can know the same objective thing, but you can know it in a way that doesn't lead to love, doesn't lead to life. It actually leads to self-absorption and arrogance and crushing other people, as we'll see. But if anyone loves God, verse 3, He is known by God. See, your knowledge of God begins with God knowing you and God giving you the gift of revelation of himself and a transformed heart and an ability to see. It's all gift. If you have knowledge and take pride in some arrogant way in that, that's treason. It's completely wrong. And so put it to death. Verse 4, Therefore, as to eat, eating food offered to idols... We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. They're quoting Paul who was quoting the Hebrew Scriptures and using it in the wrong way. He's agreeing with them. Yes, there there is just one God. These idols aren't real, verse 5, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there's one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, listen, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. See what's going on? These people have this accurate knowledge in the church, the knowers we can call them, that idols don't have life. You you don't need to be concerned about eating food sacrificed to an idol. There's nothing there and that's true. But he's saying there are some who live their lives engaging in temple sacrifice and this kind of religious observance and sacrifice. And it's incredibly difficult for them to imagine how you could eat food that had been offered to its sacrifice that doesn't bring sort of spiritual contamination to you. You know, this whole food thing may be strange to us. Because as, as New Covenant Christians, we don't have food in our worship observances. Oh, maybe we do. Isn't that amazing that Jesus takes some bread and some wine and he says, When you gather, ingest some of this food and remember what I did for you? Now, it's dramatically different in the new covenant than it was in the old, and Paul had to take Peter to task for thinking dietary laws in the old covenant still applied to new covenant believers. But food is a really helpful thing to use in worship because it's so basic to our life. It's how we stay alive. And so these pagans it would go to these gods and offer food and depend on them for more food. And that's not the way it was in the Old Covenant, but there were all kinds of foods that were part of the religion of the Old Covenant that they brought into the worship context. And so we understand this. It makes a lot of sense. Food still, not just in the Lord's Supper that Christians partake of, but even gathering as God's people and eating together has a heightened fellowship we can have in it. We need to do a whole series on a Christian view of food sometime. It's huge. And so their problem was understandable. It was just Part of the worship, and now how do you separate yourself from what you had used to worship these false gods all these time, all this time? So he acknowledges, yes, there is only one God and Father. He says, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Th- some through former association in verse seven with idols eat foods as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. He's saying, look, the issue isn't the food. The issue is your heart when you're eating it or when you're not. And what's motivating it and what the goal is in doing all of this. He's saying to the knowers, you're right, you're right. You're accurate in your knowledge. You understand that idols aren't real. You understand that this food has no uh, polluting effect on you if you eat it. Now, I think Paul's addressing a certain kind of eating food sacrifice to idols. I think if we, when we keep reading, we'll see he doesn't think it's okay to go to a temple and engage in the sacrifice and eat the food like pagans do. Or I don't even think he's affirming that you can eat in the kind of restaurant. They had within the temple, and that was okay. I think he's saying a lot of this food is used, sold in the marketplace, so you take it home and you eat it. So you're you're not at the temple doing this with the pagans, but you're home eating food that had nevertheless been sacrificed to idols. And he's saying, Yeah, that food's not going to have any effect on you. Idols aren't real. You're right about that, knowers. But in exercising your freedom in this, where's your heart? What's your attitude? That's what he's asking. And he ain't playing around. Listen. Verse 9. But take care. Be careful in the way you exercise your freedom that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, he will not be encouraged if his conscience is weak, to eat, uh, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. He's saying, you're right. You have that freedom. And and in some context, go ahead and exercise that freedom. But be careful about the context in which you're exercising it. Realize that there are people in your life who are having a very difficult time in this area distinguishing this behavior that has no inherent evil in it from all the evil that went along with them in their life for so long. So love them. Look, there are lots of passages of Scripture that go after people who heap burdens of legalism and rules and laws on the shoulders of people when the gospel of grace is being compromised. The whole book of Galatians is about that. Paul couldn't condemn more strongly those who are using the law to burden people rather than lead them to the grace of the gospel. But this passage is going after those of us who are seeing things rightly and then use that freedom in unloving ways that end up misleading people into more misunderstanding and often back into the idolatry they've been freed from. You know, it's interesting. Paul condemns the the legalistic practices of Galatia, but when he takes Timothy, who's half Jewish, to Jerusalem, He's, he has him circumcised just to remove that obstacle. It doesn't need to be, but he just, why cause an obstacle? He's saying, what's wise here? What's helpful here? Not just what's permissible. You know, just, just a few verses later after this, Paul's going to say, just because something, something's lawful or not required isn't the question. The question is, is it helpful? Is it edifying? Is it going to be a blessing? Is it going to be an encouragement? Or is it going to add needless obstacles to people walking in the gospel that is the truth? Let's not exercise our freedom in ways that is hurtful but helpful. There are three things going on here as a framework of this passage. The first is what we're seeing is in verses one through three, we are seeing the fundamental approach driven by gospel living. The fundamental approach to this issue of how to be faithful in regard to this meat sacrifice to idol thing how do we be faithful in light of the fact that there are knowers who understand there's nothing in that meat that's, that's inherently evil or wrong, and eating it isn't inherently evil or wrong? Objectively, that's true. But subjectively, in the context we're in, there's got to be a fundamental approach that's driven by love, that's driven by building others up, not just expressing your so-called rights or freedoms. And so we recognize the challenge of this still alive and well in our day. And the fundamental approach is is that knowledge about God is not enough. Do you know demons know true things? Lots of true things. The problem with demons is not that they don't know. James says the demons believe there's one God and shudder. He doesn't say they believe there's one God and they worship or they love or they obey or bear fruit of the Spirit. See, the problem is not inaccuracy of knowledge. It's not connecting that knowledge to love and worship in obedience and fruit of the Spirit. It's not enough to have the right knowledge. It's got to have the effect of love in our lives. That's the point. So the fundamental approach is this. And tragically, there can often be a disconnect in our lives between what we know is true and the way we actually live. And if our knowledge isn't leading to love, we've got to recognize that tragedy and do whatever we can and ask the Lord to help us make those connections between knowing the God we love and loving people the way he calls us to and loving him the way he calls us to. You know, there's no greater example I can think of in our nation than slavery in this regard. Do you know, I bet most slave owners during slavery knew the Bible better than most of us. And what's to say, the vast majority of them would say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian for sure. But there was this terrific disconnect. You know, it happens to be Black History Month, but it doesn't have to be for me to quote one of my heroes, Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass was actually born 200 years ago last week on February 14th. Do you know one of the saddest things to me about the slave experience is almost no slaves knew the day they were born. You know what that says about your life? So he made up February 14th, but we know it was 200 years ago in uh, 1818. But listen to what he said. Frederick Douglass was a freed slave and he, a, he was an orator and a statesman and a, just a brilliant man and a minister of the gospel. And he looked around at the church of his day and, and listen to what he said. He said, oh, let's go back. Listen to what he said. I keep messing you guys. I'll just let you do it. There we go. Thanks, These ministers make religion a cold and flinty-hearted thing. Having neither principles of right action nor bowels of compassion, they strip the love of God of its beauty and leave the throng of religion a huge, horrible, repulsive form. It's a religion for oppressors, tyrants, man-stealers, and thugs. It's not that pure and undefiled religion which is from above and which is first and pure and peaceable, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. See what he's saying? These people who know the Bible and call themselves Christians, even these ministers have this tragic disconnect between the knowledge they have and the people it makes them into and the way they treat other people. And God is saying to us this morning, make the connection. Make the connection between the knowledge you have and the love you have for God and for other people. And if your knowledge isn't leading to love, it's a tragic disconnect. Now, the problem's not the knowledge. This is not some call to mushy, sort of vague, abstract love that not, that's not grounded in truth. No, the first point is the fundamental approach to this. The second point is the foundational truth, right? The, whole, the point of these writing this letter and saying these things is because he thinks truth matters, and I see all these expressions that drive me crazy. You may have a t-shirt on right now that says this, and this is not motivating me to see that. But see this quote all the time now. If it's between being right and being kind, be kind. And every time I see somebody with that, I want to say, are you right about that? <laughs> As if you can ever have one or the other, right? It's always both, right? Be kind over right is just missing how we work, right? Of course, we find truth leading to life and freedom. So of course, knowledge matters. The problem isn't the knowledge. The problem isn't the truth. It's a tragic disconnect between the knowledge and the truth and the way we love or don't. And so we're being called to love this morning. I love this church because this church loves the acquisition of knowledge You come to learn. I can't tell you what a blessing it is to be a teacher in the context of a church that loves to learn and sees the value of truth. But we need to be warned this morning by this passage. Knowledge puffs up. We can be so proud of being right when we have knowledge. It's so easy for it to happen. We need to love righteousness and realize people need the truth because the truth will set them free, but never in a way that's self-exalting. See, that's the difference between the Galatians who are using their, their law to oppress people and push them down and what Paul is calling us to, to use truth to lift people up. Yes, the weak in conscience need instruction so they don't see something is wrong that isn't. They don't see life in an idol that isn't there. But the knowers need to have a patience and a kindness and a respect and an understanding for the weakened conscience. It's not either or. I don't want to miss the the difficult word to the knowers. I, I do think having right answers is absolutely essential. But what are those right answers leading us to becomes the question. Is it a way of loving? Is it leading to a fundamental way of love? So the fundamental approach is loving uh, is loving people grounded in our knowledge, but the fundamental truth is that there's one God. And I love verses uh, Uh. verses four through six. Starts in four. There's one God. And then verse 6, for us there's one God and Father, from whom are all things. He's just quoting arguably the most important verse in the whole Old Testament for Jewish religion, the Shema. "Hear, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he adds Jesus to Deuteronomy 6.4, and One Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all are all things and through whom we exist. So he's saying, of course, that truth is the grounding. It's the fundamental foundation of our faith. So the truth matters. Of course that truth matters. But what are you doing with it? What are you leading to? And if we don't have the fundamental approach and the foundational truth, we will be led to a fatal freedom an expression of freedom that is fatal for people. It destroys them as we express our unwise freedom. So this foundational truth, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. Do you know that that Deuteronomy 6, 4 verse is followed by, do you know what it's followed by? There's one God, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and not enough Christians know what comes next. Deuteronomy 6.5, yes, but what is it? Therefore, love the Lord your God. With all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your neighbor as yourself, there's one God, right? So love grounded in that knowledge of one god and when we know that one god has saved us through his one son jesus who he sent we are freed to not be constrained by needless laws but we're also freed by not having to assert our rights over other people who have weak consciences and we can love people understanding where they are in all of this and so we we are different than we would be otherwise And this fatal freedom is described as destroying your brother for whom Christ died, verse 11. That's as strong as it can be. Those are judgment day, end time realities that that someone can face destruction because you were so arrogant in the way you asserted your truth. That is actually true. But you went about it in a way that's destructive. Thus sinning against your brothers, verse 12, and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. This is as strong as it can be. This is not to legalists. This is to people who get the gospel of grace but aren't gracious. Who get the gospel of love but aren't loving. So you have to wonder if they actually get it. Because... The Bible says this, this can't be this way. We've got to be loving people. We don't assert our freedom in all of this if people are hurt by it. Wisdom is needed in this, is it not? We don't want to fall into legal, legalism, but we don't want to fall into fatal freedom either. We need to pursue holiness, realizing that pursuit of holiness is not legalistic, necessarily but maybe wise. I had a conversation this week with someone I'm very close to who called and said, I'm leaving my church. And I said, why? And she's says, I found out that my pastor drinks alcohol. We talked for an hour and a half. And I said, I get it. I get it. But um. if you have this rule for your church, it means that you could not have a pastor named Jesus or Paul. I wanted her to see that that's a rule the Bible's not going to lead her to. And it wasn't grape juice. But I know her. And I want her pastor to know I want her pastor to know the devastation that alcohol brought to her life as a kid. Just the smell of it brings back a flood of memories. It's so hard for her to imagine there could be anything good in that. I'm not saying Christians can't drink. The Bible doesn't say that. You know, it's, it's been fascinating to watch culturally. I'm, I'm, I'm an old man now, and it, a lot has changed, right? I don't think I could find a Christian who drank when I was a kid. But it seems like the pendulum has swung, and there can be such a lack of an appreciation for the devastation of some things. Now, I had to say to her, you know, um, she, she and her husband ride a motorcycle. And I said, you know, there are people who had a son die on a motorcycle. And they think anybody who rides a motorcycle is a complete fool. They could never have a pastor who does something so foolish. But I get it. It's not a rule. It's not a law, but I get it. Do you get it? You see, do you have compassion for these weaker conscience people? Or do you love to flaunt your freedom and think they're idiots? I hope you get it. I hope you love. See, this can be really complex. What does Carissa do with her wedding? What do Andre and this young man I met last week do with basketball? What do we do with music from our past? What what do we do with things we might have done in our old religious practice that don't have any inherent badness to them, but man, it's tough. See, we're all in different places in this, aren't we? There's There's not one of us in here who doesn't have stuff we need to work through and deal with and figure out how it fits into my Christian life. And nothing surprised me more as a disciple or as a minister than how many judgment calls God gives to us to figure out. So what do we do? It's bewildering. I'm telling you, I read the Bible and it says, be generous. And i like, could I get a percentage? It says, care for the poor. And I said, is food bank enough? because I don't really even go much. Haven't been in a long time. But my church is doing it, so I'm caring for the poor in that way, and I give money that helps with that. So is that enough? Lord, I don't know. What, what do you want me to do to care for the poor? Is, is it okay that I'm part of something that's doing it? Oh, I, I do it on a personal level too, but Lord, what does it mean for me to be faithful? What does that look like for you to be faithful? What does it look like for you to look at people who aren't expressing their obedience necessarily with the same details you are. So it's so easy to be judgmental. You know, I have friends who are new Christians and it's a huge accomplishment for them just to get through one sentence without a curse word. I hate that non-Christians and new Christians are, are ashamed to come to church because of that kind of thing. But but what's, what's, our, what's our vibe? What's our ethos? Is it grace? Is it the gospel? Is it love? Is it, is it using our freedom grounded in truth to love or limiting that freedom? That's what Paul says. I mean, he just goes, "Oh, he says, I'll never eat meat again if it's gonna hurt one of my brothers. Don't you love that love? He says, look, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. Whether I eat meat or not. It's amazing how you go in other parts of the world and wearing a hat inside is so rude, especially in church. I'm not wearing that hat. Where's it say in the Bible can't wear a hat? Punch me if I ever do something like that. Take the hat off. It's just amazing how we just love our rights. We live in this rights-obsessed society. But what does it mean? It can be bewildering to figure this out, especially when you add all of us together. But there's a simplicity in this. There's a clarity in this. And you know what it is? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, consider others as more important than yourselves. Do not look out for your own interests, but also the interests of others. And I hear that and I say, how do I do that? I'm selfish to the core Thankfully, God tells us, it goes on, have this mind in yourselves. What is that mind? The mind of Christ, who, although he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the cruciform life, the Christ-shaped life becomes the life of the Christian. And now it's not so hard to figure out. It's others before myself. How? Why? Oh, because God loved me first like that. He gave himself for me, which is what the Lord's Supper is. It's this incredible celebration of God giving himself completely self-sacrificially and graciously for us and not only saving us and then freeing us to live like he does, but calling us out of that to do it. So as you come forward this morning, if you're a follower of Christ, which is who the Lord's Supper for, come not just with a recognition of Jesus in your place. But with a recognition of Jesus in your place as an example of Christ' life-like self-sacrificial love as the goal of all the knowledge we have, oh, could you imagine if we really got this? Well, oh, I see all kinds of massive images of this every day in this flock. But I think there's plenty of room for us to grab a hold of Christ-like love given to us completely that then frees us to love like he does. And the power of the Spirit grounded in truth but with the goal of love. That's what this table is. It's not just a demonstration of partaking of these symbols of the body and blood of Christ. It's doing it as the body of Christ. You think when Paul says, you're destroying Christ when you destroy one of these brothers. Think he didn't get that because Jesus knocked him down on the road to Damascus and said, why, Paul, are you persecuting me? That's how united to Jesus we are. So the way you treat your brothers and sisters is a reflection of your attitude and relationship to Jesus himself. Because as we partake of these images of the body and blood of Christ, we represent the body of Christ. As the servers come forward, let me pray for the Lord's Supper this morning. Lord, thank you that this old book couldn't be more relevant. Thank you for the power and life-giving effect of your word. Lord, would you help us to be freed, truly freed from you, the one God, and the Lord Jesus Christ who has done everything we need to be set free from sin and death. And Lord, would you help us to love one another and self-sacrificial, humble, lay down our lives, take up our cross ways more and more each day. And Lord, I pray that what happens as a result would have an effect not just in La Mirada and the surrounding communities, but that it would have a ripple effect around the world and into eternity. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.